dismissed to teach me to worship. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 13. Last week, we encountered a betrayal, a divine espionage, for Judas betrayed the king of all creation. And I asked us to consider this question, what would you have done? What would you have done if someone who hates you, if someone who reviles you, sat before you, and you were given the chance to wash their feet, what would you have done? Because it was in this foot washing that Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples. And it was at this foot washing that Jesus pushes his disciples beyond the boundaries that they are willing to go. Because if we consider our own hearts for us, it's hard enough to love those who love us. And Jesus demands that we not only love our neighbors as ourselves, but he pushes us beyond that standard. He pushes us beyond the golden rule. You are to love others as I have loved you. And I might have gotten a little ahead of myself last week because this is exactly what we read in our passage this morning in verses 31 to 38, which I'm going to read in a minute. Because this is where we find the new commandment from Jesus. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And I asked a hypothetical question. And I'm going to give you a little insider to my, to my, own, to my own thoughts. As I was reflecting on this sermon my first reaction was, I wish I really wouldn't have asked that question. Because I asked this hypothetical question, imagine if, imagine if the disciples had such a community, had such a friendship and relationship with one another, that they were so able to speak of their sin to each other, what would have happened to the disciples? And I regret my first reaction was to regret asking this hypothetical question. Because as I thought about the sermon, Tyler, you're such an idiot. They're with Jesus. Of course he would create that type of community. It's God himself with his disciples. Of course they would want to talk freely about their sin with God. They had Jesus. They could physically see and touch Jesus. But then I began to think harder about my hypothetical question. 
And then I was glad I asked the question. Because the hypothetical question didn't have to deal with who Jesus was. The hypothetical question had to do with the hearts of the disciples. And I know what's in the heart of the disciples because it's in my heart too. And the reality is we have Jesus just as much as the disciples had Jesus. Yes, they could reach across the table and touch his hand. But through the promises of the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We have just as much Jesus as the disciples had. Through the proclamation of the living word, we hear Jesus just as much as disciples heard Jesus. Through the sacrament, we touch, taste, see, and feel Jesus just as much as the disciples did. And in this hypothetical question, what I didn't say, but what I inferred and implied was, what if our church was this community of disciples, where we could speak freely of our sin? What if this church truly lived out the gospel that we might bring about the obedience of faith by making the name of Jesus known among the nations? That we, disciples of Jesus Christ, might do what Jesus commands us to do, to love our neighbor as Jesus loved us. This was the heart of my sermon from last week. This will also be the heart of my sermon this week. However, there are a few things I want us to see from this passage. Because this passage lays out for us a beautiful picture of what this love is and what this love will cause us to do. And I want us to see two things about the reality of the gospel. Is that this gospel reveals the glory and the demand of Christ. And that the gospel also reveals the destination of the disciples. The gospel reveals the glory and the demand of Christ, and the gospel reveals the destination of his disciples. I'm going to read John 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone, when Judas had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot come, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will, cr not, will not crow till you have denied me 
three times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come as needy people, as your needy people. Feed us the words of life. Revive our souls this morning. Give us strength as we renew our covenant vows to you that we will follow you by faith. Lord, we ask for you to heal us. As we've already asked you to heal us from our sins, we ask for you also to heal some of us who are physically ill. Lord, I lift up Cynthia Jaqua and Bill Ferris and the Hoppers and Joan Raspberry and J.M. Atkinson, and Jonathan Pence. Lord, and anyone else who is, who is suffering from illness, Lord, we ask you to heal them. Lord, we pray for the events of our church, for the upcoming RYM trips, for both the middle school and high school, for the canoe trips. Lord, we ask that the youth of this church will be such a community that knows and loves Jesus. That they will be your disciples wherever they go. That they will love one another. That they will build one another up. That they will speak truth to one another. Lord, refresh them on these trips. Rejuvenate them. Reveal to them how much you love them. Lord, I pray this week for our denomination's general assembly in Birmingham. Lord, we lift up the leaders of your church, your shepherds of the church. Lord, may you bring peace and harmony, and faithfulness, and love. May we do the business that needs to be done to protect your church from the evil one. May this denomination be a blessing to your people, a blessing to this country, and a blessing throughout the world. Lord, we thank you for the work of the professors. Bless the work of their hands. Lord, we lift up the people of Ukraine. Bring peace. And Father, may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. After I've worked in my yard for what seems like four or five hours, typically it's about one, after I've cut the grass and edged, pulled the weeds, weed-eated, I typically open a cold beverage and bask in the glory of a cut yard. Children, how many of you have a place in your home where you keep all of your accomplishments in one place? Whether it's trophies or awards or scouts' honors. Students, how many of you revel in the glory of your best social media post? How many people have seen it? Maybe it was the most artistic photo you've ever had, the best video. Parents, how much of us generate the glory of our children, whether we create a shrine of their accomplishments or through the stories that we tell when we try to enshrine the idea of their glory in the mind of others? And it's not just parents doing this of children, children, people who have fathers and mothers. How do we tell stories, endearing stories of our parents? I love hearing stories, your stories of fathers who have fought in war, who have been heroic, who have done for your family something that no one else could have done from your family. And these stories encapsulate our minds of the greatness of our mom or our dad. This is to glorify them. That's what the term means. To glorify means to see the great beauty or splendor and the overwhelming power of what someone has done. It is so to describe someone, to make them admirable to somebody else, to influence someone's opinion, to enhance their reputation, and to cause someone else to praise, honor, or extol them. Now, whether our children do it for themselves, whether we do it for our children, or whether we do it about the, the grass that we just cut, we like to glorify things. And what we read in this passage is a different type of glory. It is not of man glorifying something in himself, but it is of God glorifying himself. And we read it five times. We see this word glorified. The Son of Man glorified. God glorified. God glorified in himself. God will glorify him. It's used so many times we almost lose an understanding of what is John trying to say. What is Jesus teaching his disciples? But this is what Jesus is saying. It's time. Judas has left, or, or Satan. It says he is gone. Judas has left the room. It's time. There's no turning back. The glory of God 
will be revealed. We will see his splendid greatness. And John does something. He, he uses this turn again, the Son of Man. And we've seen this over and over in the past few verses throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Typically, this phrase, Son of Man, is used to represent his suffering, Jesus' suffering. But since we've sat under the preaching of John Sartell, we also know this phrase was used in Daniel 7, speaking of the glorious suffering servant who would conquer his enemies. And here John conjoins, conflates these two images, the sufferer and the glorified. And John brings to light what he's only inferred since the beginning of his gospel. When he said in John 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We now see this on display. The Son of Man will be glorified. And the question is, how? Some say he's glorified in the resurrection from the dead. That seems pretty reasonable. Some say he's going to be glorified when he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And some say we will see his glory when he is revealed at his second coming, when he comes back to make all things new. But that is not what this passage is talking about. All of those things are, are true. But as the ESV Study Bible note says, this should remind us of Isaiah 49.3, where God says of his servant, in you I will be glorified, because it is the suffering servant who goes to the cross, who reveals the glory of God. At the cross? How is someone glorified at the cross? The cross is an emblem of death and shame and defeat. But this is why Paul so eloquently speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that although the cross is a symbol for the world of this defeat, God used the foolishness of man to reveal the power of God. It was at the cross that God chose to use what was low and despised in the world to bring himself glory. It's at the cross, as D.A. Carson puts it, God is glorified in Jesus' temporal obedience, sacrifice, death, resurrection, and exaltation as one event Jesus is glorified in the same event in the eternal presence and essence of his heavenly Father, partly because in this event he re-enters into glory which he had before the Word became flesh, before the worlds began, and the entire event displays the saving sovereignty of God's power. It is at the cross of Jesus that God reveals who he truly is. It is at the cross of Jesus that the entire world is able to see the greatness 
of the, war, of the greatness of God. It is at the cross of Jesus that God reveals he dies for the sins of the world so that you don't have to. This is the glory of God. It is at the cross that this glory is revealed. It is at the cross that the love of God is revealed. It's at the cross that the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. It is finished. Your sins have been dealt with. You are forgiven. That is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That is the manifestation of his splendor. That is where he revealed how great he truly is. He defeated sin because you couldn't. It is finished is the glory of God. Because at that moment, his plan of salvation for the world was on display for the world to see. The fullness of the promises of God were on display at the cross. Do you see it? Have you seen that glory? That from the beginning of time, God had a plan to redeem you from your sins. And the Son of Man was lifted up. And this is a twofold glory. God the Father glorified the Son. This is how much I love you. God the Son glorified the Father. This is how much he loves you. He sent his Son to die for you. This is the gospel that reveals the glory of Christ. This is the gospel that also reveals the command of Christ. Because what does Jesus say? In light of this glory, in light of this event that has been on display for the world to see, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Yet for a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is where his disciples are going. He's given them the truth of the gospel. It is finished, but then he gives them something to do. And this is where, as Christians, we have a really hard time struggling between this truth, between this law and this gospel. It is finished is the gospel. And then we have this command. We must do something. If this truth resides in us, if we have seen 
the glory on display, it should change us to follow after Jesus. This is why we have the assurance of pardon followed by the law. We don't do the law so that we might be saved. We do the law because we are saved already. It is finished. Because you will not be judged upon your faithfulness. This is the gospel. You will not be judged upon your faithfulness. We are judged by the faithfulness of Jesus. There is therefore no, now no condemnations for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is what's true. You are free from your sin. Therefore, go and love others. You are free to love because you are not saved on the amount of love that is in your heart. You are saved on the amount of love that Jesus has given you. This is what is so great about John's first epistle. And I'll tell you in, in my little legal pad of notes, I read through 1 John about six times this week. I have about 12 pages of notes. John understood what was going on here. The epistle of John really is Chapter 13 through 15, John writing it to the church and saying, this is what's true. We see here, Jesus says, little children. John uses that same phrase six times in his epistle. He teaches about this new commandment in four of the five chapters in his epistle. He speaks of God's love in Christ in over half the book, and he speaks to, of us as the children of God. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, John understood what Jesus was trying to say. What God was revealing. That God had manifested his glory in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And through this great love, he has called us to follow him by faith. And here's the question. Are we? Are we displaying this type of love? A love that does not come out of our own hearts, but is poured out of the heart of Jesus. Are we as disciples of Jesus, glorifying Jesus, magnifying him, so that the entire world might see his greatness with the way that we treat our children with the way that we treat our friends through our Insta posts. As fathers, as parents, are we glorifying him as he has commanded us to do? Are we glorifying him in the mundane ta tasks? Are we glorifying him in our sexual ethics? in our work ethics, in our political ethics? Are we glorifying him with our time and money? Are we glorifying God in our resting? Yes, I said it, in our resting. 
This is at the heart of what Paul says to the Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is how you fulfill his commandment, by loving others as Christ has first loved us. Jesus has brought us into communion with himself in order to enable us to partake of his glorification. Jesus loves you all, loves me so much that all of the glory that he receives, he shares with us. This is the gospel that reveals the glory and the command of Christ. In this second part, in verses 36 through 38, we also see the gospel reveals the destination of his disciples. Have you ever been in a conversation where you know the other person isn't listening? Where they're just waiting to speak about whatever they want to speak about. This is exactly what we see from Peter here. Peter was kind of listening, but he really wasn't listening. Because this is what Jesus said. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Remember this. For a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. And this is what Peter says. Lord, where are you going? Uh, forget about that commandment stuff. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? Peter's not really listening. Peter overlooked the promise of the gospel. Peter was so worried about where Jesus was going, and Peter was also so worried about what? I will lay down my life for you. John records Peter saying this. Mark records Peter saying, even though they fall away, I will not. To which Jesus responds, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And Peter responds emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then this is what Mark tells us. And then all of the disciples said the same. This is the heart of the disciples. Sounds a whole lot like our own hearts, doesn't it? As D.A. Carson also says, and I think very pastorally, which he's typically not, very pastorally, he says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after, a good, after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. It's pretty easy in a place like this to swear our allegiance to Jesus. It's pretty easy in a room like this to say, I will do anything for Jesus. It's pretty easy to do in a room like this to say, I would die for Jesus. But we all know the story. All the disciples deserted Jesus. Peter denied Jesus because Peter failed to see 
what his need was. His need was not to go where Jesus was going. His need was Jesus himself. His need was that Jesus would die for him. For this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you the first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Peter's replacing the gospel, the gospel of grace, with the theology of works. No, Jesus, you will not die. I, I will die for you. Peter misunderstands the fundamental aspect of what Jesus is doing. He's thinking of what he can do for Jesus and now what Jesus is doing for him. Two other times in John's gospel, Jesus tells the Jews, the, the Pharisees, the ones he's working against, where I am going, you cannot follow. And this is where Peter misses the gospel here. Look at what Jesus says. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. The Jews weren't given that same promise. Those who opposed Jesus' teachings, those who tried to arrest him and tried to crucify him, didn't get that same promise. And don't we do that same thing? We forget to focus on the promise. And we focus upon what we need to do to follow Jesus. Peter was worried about Jesus leaving. That's probably okay. He had dedicated three years of his life to follow Jesus. He had heard his words. But Peter misplaced his trust. If I look at my own heart, I misplaced my own trust too often. More than I am willing to admit. Because I, I could say by Monday morning, I'm typically just trying to do my own salvation. But honestly, it's really about Sunday at about 1 o'clock. I forget to lose focus of the promises of Jesus, of what he has done for me. And I wonder about your hearts. I wonder how long it takes you to forget the promises of God, of what he has done for you. Because this is the destination of where the disciples are going. They are his disciples, and they will be with him. Just not right now. I wonder how many of you need to hear that this morning. You will be where Jesus is, just not right now. But Peter became so worried about what was going on that he missed it. He missed the promise. But I didn't read this earlier. Let me read the first part of chapter 14, verse 1. What does Jesus tell his disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Followers of Jesus, 
let not your hearts be troubled. Your salvation is dependent upon the promises of Jesus Christ, who's been glorified and who's coming again. Amen. Let us pray together.